I know of a name, a beautiful name, that angels brought down to earth. They whispered it low one night long ago to a maiden of lowly birth. That beautiful name, that beautiful name, from sin has power to free us. That beautiful name, that wonderful name, that matchless name is Jesus. I know of a name, a beautiful name, that unto a babe was given. The stars glittered bright throughout that glad night, and angels praised God in heaven. That beautiful name, that beautiful name, from sin has power to free us. That beautiful name, that wonderful name, that matchless name is Jesus. His name is wonderful, His name is wonderful, His name is wonderful, Jesus my Lord. He is the mighty King, master of everything. His name is wonderful, Jesus my Lord. He's the great shepherd, the rock of all ages, almighty God is he. Bow down before him, love and adore him. His name is wonderful, Jesus my Lord. Today's scripture reading is in the book of Acts, chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came with a straight course unto Coas, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence to Patera, and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia. Phoenicia, we went abroad and set forth. Now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre. And there the ship was to unload, uh, un unlaid her burden. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way, and they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship, and they returned home again. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which is, was one of the seven, and abode with him. The same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that 
owneth this girdle and shall deliver him unto the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard those things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean you to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when we would not he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one Mason of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. <clears throat> Christmas time. We're going to go ahead and let the kids be dismissed to Children's Church before. <laughs> so, kids ages four years old to fourth grade, you're go, you can go ahead and be dismissed for uh, Children's Church. Christmas time for me is always one of the harder times as a, a pastor to prepare messages for. In fact, actually, I have one weakness. I struggle with writing messages for any holiday. Okay? It's like, I usually, I come to it, and I'm like, Lord, show me what you want me to preach. But holidays are telling you exactly what to preach, okay? And that's kind of hard for me. Maybe I'm a rebel. I don't know. So, okay. But um, it, I don't want to preach the same things over and over and over again either. So I've, as we go into the month of December, I'm going to be preaching Christmas messages more than I am not. But every now and then there will be messages that are not Christmas messages, okay? Because kids, I know it's December, but it is not Christmas today, is it? Okay, so it is not Christmas today, it is, it is December 3rd, okay? So we are going to preach, we are going to continue on in our series that we started going through the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 21. We are tracing the progress of the gospel as, uh, as, as it goes out from Jerusalem to the rest of the world throughout the book of Acts. And this passage, passage that Brother Jeff just read, it's been one of the most controversial passages in, in the book of Acts. And if you read it at face value, it seems, you seem to come away thinking that Paul was disobedient to the will of God, right? And, and that is possible. Is it possible for Paul to have been disobedient to God? Yeah, it is, right? There are other great men of God who were disobedient to God. No man is perfect. Even, even men like Paul and Peter and James and John, these men were not perfect men. And so commentators have struggled with this text and they've come up with all kinds of different explanations for what they think this text teaches. Some of them, men like H.A. Ironside, I don't know if you know that name, um, but H.A. Ironside struggled to reconcile the meaning of this passage. And he, he said, basically, Paul was disobeying God's directive will, meaning this is what God told him to do, but he wasn't disobeying God's permissive will. That's, that was his way of reconciling this, this passage. He believed that Paul loved these people so much and he had this offering to bring to the Jews that his love, his good motives, pushed him into disobeying what God had told him to do. And he sees in this an example of even good men in the New Testament who fail and do wrong. Another example of this would be Peter, right? Paul withstood Peter to his face in the book of Galatians because Peter was being a hypocrite and he was judging and he was separating himself from Gentile Christians when Jewish Christians were around. And so it is possible for good men to fail. That was H.A. Ironside's view. Another commentator, Ray Stedman, he's an online commentary, but he feels that Paul was stubbornly resisting God's will. And every city that he went, God was trying to say, stop resisting me, stop going, and turn around. That, that's his view. And so Paul would have been in direct sin there. Another view is held that uh, by a smaller group of people, that both Paul and these prophets of Tyre, they are both filled with the Spirit, but Paul was a little bit more filled with the Spirit, so his, his message was better than theirs. Okay? Honestly, all of, the, all of these views, in my opinion, are mistaken. Okay? They, they all fall short. My view of the text aligns more with what most people believe about this text. I believe that it was God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem. And I could be wrong, but I want to show you how I came to that conclusion. I believe, really, God is trying to warn Paul about what, what would happen. You guys ever watch the old uh, Mission Impossible episodes in TV? Okay. Every, every time there was a mission, Pastor Carr's shaking his head over there. Every time there was a mission that they were going to be given, the, the uh, message would say something like this. 
Um, I, I got to quote it here because uh, I got it written down. But your mission, Dan or Jim, should you choose to, to accept it, is thus, thus, and thus. And then it would say, in 10 seconds, this message will self-destruct, right? Okay. So, and then it blows up. There's smoke coming from whatever it is. I kind of think that that's what God was doing here. Paul's going to Jerusalem, and it's not going to be easy. And God is trying to say each step of the way, hey, Paul, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is going to include all of these different things. He is warning him beforehand what's going to happen. Um, as I said, my, my view tends to align with what most people view, and I'll, I'll kind of play that out and explain how this all resolves. Um, but this, well, the way we're going to approach this message today is I want to work our way through the text, then ask ourselves this question. Was it God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem? And I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see it for yourself. And then in the conclusion, I hope to leave you with some points to consider about the will of God from this passage. Because that's, that's the main takeaway. If you, were to, if you were to summarize this entire passage, we would be left with this question. What is the will of God? In fact, in verse number 14, where we're probably going to end here, it ends with these words. He says, and when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, the will of of the Lord be done. Paul's desire was that God's will would be done in his life. And I think it ought to be our desire as well. But let's go and break this up. First of all, we're going to look at Paul's warning in the city of Tyre, verses 1 through 7. Now, last time we saw Paul, he was, in, he was talking to the Ephesian elders, and he'd had this address to them, and, and he told them, I'm never going to see you again. And the previous chapter in verse number 38 says, that they departed sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. So these Ephesian elders, they're sorrowful, they're, they're sad. In fact, this, this word speaks of extreme emotional distress over what Paul has told them, that they will see him no more. They will never see him again. And then that leads us into verse number one, where it says, and it came to pass... That after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came with a straight course unto Coos, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence unto Patara. It says here that it came to pass that after we were gotten from them, that phrase gotten from them literally means to tear ourselves away. We had to tear ourselves away from these Ephesian believers because they were so sad, they were so emotionally distraught. But we see here that there is a strong emotional connection between Paul and the people that he ministered to. They loved him dearly. And so that, that's going to play into everything that we see in, in the following texts. These people loved Paul. They were concerned about Paul. Most of this text that we're going to read is going to be a travel log that Luke keeps of their voyage back to Jerusalem. But on their way, they end up stopping in a couple key cities. One of them is Tyre. Tyre is not one of the cities that Paul had actually planted a church in. It was probably started by those who fled after the death of Stephen. In Acts 11, verse 19, it mentions that a group of people who were scattered from Jerusalem made their way to Phoenice, where Tyre was located. But in, that sh in this short amount of time, it says here, he was there seven days. Verse 4 says, in finding disciples, we tarried there seven days. In seven days' time, God had knit the hearts of these believers I think there's a lesson there. It's not the primary lesson of this message tonight that we ought to be able to have some kind of heart for other believers in, in Christ. There's something that we have in common. There's a lot that separates us. There's a lot that makes us distinct. But there is at least one thing that we do have together, and that is our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we come to, when you go to visit other churches, are you able to make a connection with the people there? You have something in common with them, right? You have the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's heart was knit to these believers because of their common shared faith. But while he is in Tyre, Paul receives a message. Verse number four continues, it says, And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul, what are the next three words? Let's read them together. Through the Spirit, that he should not go up to Jerusalem. The message seems to be pretty simple. Don't go to Jerusalem right? That, that seems point blank, cut and dry. And we can't discount that message either, because this verse says that this prophecy came 
through the Spirit, right? It isn't just something that, that came from these men's heart. It supposedly comes through the Spirit. So the way that this is worded on the surface, surface level reading, seems to indicate that Paul disobeyed God, right? That's what it would seem to indicate. The message doesn't seem to have phased Paul, though. In verse 5, it says, And when we had, accompanied those we had accomplished those days, we departed, and we went our way, and they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we kneeled down on the shore, and we prayed. So it didn't phase Paul. Paul continues going on his journey. And, uh, <clears throat> in fact, we see Paul getting on board a ship, and before he gets on board the ship, they all gather together, and they kneel down and they pray there in the sand to, to the Lord for a safe journey as Paul embarks on the next half of his trip. So Paul gets back on the ship and they continue their voyage, right? Pretty, pretty simple. We don't see any response to these men's prophecy. We don't see any rebuttal to it. All we see is they say, don't go, and Paul continues going, okay? The second story that we see starts in verse number 8, and uh, eight, verses 8 through 15, and this is Paul's warning in the city of Caesarea. It says, And the next day we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. So eventually Paul ends up in the city of Caesarea, which is a bigger town. And there they stay with Philip. We've, we've encountered Philip multiple times throughout the book of Acts. Philip had been the one who led a revival in the city of Samaria. And after, after Samaria, he ended up in the town of Caesarea. And it has been nearly 20 years since Philip ended up in Caesarea. He's been living there for nearly 20 years. And in that time, Philip has four daughters who uh, were prophets, according to the text. It shouldn't surprise us that here it lists young women who prophesied, because Peter mentioned in, in Acts chapter 2 that the events of Pentecost were the fulfillment of Joel 2, verse 28, which says, And it came to pass that afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Peter says that was fulfilled in the day of Pentecost. And while, while staying with Philip, a younger prophet, or another prophet, he's not a younger prophet, but another prophet comes to them named Agabus. He comes to visit. I, honestly, when I hear the name Agabus, I think, why don't people name their kids Agabus? Have you guys ever thought about that, David? No? Okay. You can name your kid Aggie. Like, Aggie could be the nickname. I don't know. Anyways, just for you future kids out there, as a possibility. But, uh, but we've seen this guy before, too. We've seen Philip. We've seen Agabus as well. Agabus is the guy in Acts chapter 11, verse 27 through 30, who prophesied about the great famine that was going to come. This was one of the reasons why Paul collected money to bring to the Jews in the first place, right? Which Paul was doing now. Okay, So it kind of ties together. But Ab Agabus comes with a prophecy for Paul as well. And, and I like how he gives his prophecy, because we see in this lesson a biblical proof for using object lessons. I almost did this. I, I, I was going to bring in a, uh, a belt from one of my Bhutanese outfits, because okay? in America we don't wear the same things. But in Bhutan, they have this big, huge belt that keeps their clothes together, so it doesn't fall off, right? And I was going to have David or somebody come up here, and I was going to bind them like Agabus does <laughs> with Paul. But he uses this object lesson because it makes the message so much more vivid, so much more alive. It makes it understandable. We use object lessons with children a lot. But is this a children's church? No. Was he preaching to children? Was Agabus preaching to children? No, I think adults, you need object lessons sometimes too, okay? In fact, most of the prophets used object lessons of some sort in the Old Testament. So Agabus takes Paul's girdle, his belt that went around him. It isn't like a girdle that you think of in uh, pre-American or European society, okay? This was a belt that would keep the robe together. It was also used oftentimes to hold the money that they would carry with them. Agabus takes it and he wraps his hands and his feet and he prophesies that Paul would be found by the Jews and taken into custody by the Gentiles. He would be bound by the Jews and then taken into custody by the Gentiles. This prophecy, again, was said to be by the Holy Ghost. This is a prophecy that came from the Holy Ghost. So notice that in this prophecy, there is, there is not a command not to go. He didn't say, don't go. What did he say? He said, if you go, these things are going to happen to you. 
right? Let's go and read verse, the, the following verses, verse 19. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which had prophesied, this is Philip. And we tarried there many days, and there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost. Okay, so actually, I should have had David bind my hands. Okay, that, back up on that illustration there. Okay, so, but thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. And when we, when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. So Agabus didn't say, don't go. He said, God's going to take the man who owns this girdle and he's going to bind him and he's going to be delivered up to the Gentiles. But this message was so moving. Because again, these people had a heart for Paul. They cared about Paul. They were concerned about Paul. They were so moved by this that Luke and, his tra and the traveling companion and the church, they continually beg him not to go. Verse, verse 12 says, And when we heard these things, that includes Luke there, when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him. And that word besought is in a continual tense there. It's, they continually sought, begged of him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul goes on and says in verse 13, Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. So they continually beg him. But Paul says, you're breaking my heart. Your begging is breaking my heart. I don't like to see you so upset, so sad. But I am not just willing to be bound. I'm willing to go to Jerusalem and to die for the name of the Lord. But verse 14 is key, and he says, And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. So we've seen the warning in Tyre, we've seen the warning in Caesarea, but the question we need to ask ourselves is this, and we're going to spend most of our time in this and the application, okay? Was it God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem? Because it seems like point blank, at least the prophets of Tyre said, don't go. And did Paul go? Yes, he did, okay? So if we're going to understand this, we need to properly interpret Scripture there are different principles of interpretation that we use when we're trying to understand a passage of Scripture. One of the first ones you'll ever learn if you're learning how to study the Bible is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture defines what Scripture means. Okay? You don't take a verse out of context and make it mean what you want it to mean. You study the rest of the teaching of Scripture and interpret it according to what the rest of the Bible says. So are there specific passages that deal with this decision by Paul that might in some way shed light on, this, on the answer to this question. Let's turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We've seen some of these as we've been going through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19. In <clears throat> verse 21. It says, After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit... When he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Okay, this is the beginning of Paul's journey to Jerusalem. But he says, after these things were ended, Paul purposed, what are the next three words? In the spirit, okay? In the spirit. I think there, there are two interpretations of that passage. Some people believe that it's just saying in his spirit, I don't think that's the case because the word before spirit is the word the. It is the spirit. And uh, I, so I believe it is the Holy Spirit here that is joining along with Paul in his resolve to go to Jerusalem. And so we seem to have a conflict here, right? Between this passage and chapter 21, verse 4 that we, that we just read. Because Paul is being told one thing, but these prophets seem to have been told another thing. Paul's being told, go to Jerusalem. They're saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, the question we got to ask ourselves is, does the Holy Spirit ever contradict himself? Does he lie? No, he does not. The Holy Spirit doesn't contradict himself, okay? So there's got to be a solution to this question. Let's turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> and verse 22.
Acts 20, verse 22, says, And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. So he goes, notice those words, bound in the Spirit, bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem. I think that, that language is a little bit stronger there because Paul is saying not just that I want to go, but he is bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. It's an interesting play on words though, isn't it? He's bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. What's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem? He's going to be bound, right? Okay? It's, it's not by accident that he uses these words. But the idea is that the Spirit compelled him to go. Paul did not feel like he had any other choice. Okay? And then in chapter 23, this is after Paul has gone there. In chapter 23, verse number 11. Chapter 23, verse 11 says, And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem so thou must bear witness also at Rome. So that what, what's happened here is Paul's been arrested. The fulfillment of the prophecy has come. Paul's bound, he's arrested, he's, he's in jail. And what happens? God comes to him, and I love the wording here, because the following night the Lord stood by him. He doesn't just come to comfort him, but he comforts him by his presence with him in this dark moment of his life. But the Lord stood by him, and he said, be of good cheer, Paul. Why? Why should you be happy? Did, did he berate Paul? Did he say, Paul, why did you come here? You've been ignoring me all along the way. Is that what God said? No, he said, be of good cheer. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so thou must bear witness also at Rome. I believe that the implication here is that God was not condemning him going to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was part of that plan. He says, as you've prophesied of me in Jerusalem, you're going to go and you're going to preach in Rome the same way as well. And then in Romans chapter number 15, let's go and turn there, Romans chapter 15. Book of Romans was written to the church of Rome before Paul went to Rome, okay? Before he went to Jerusalem even. Romans 15 in verse 31 as he's concluding his letter to the Roman church, Romans 15, verse 31. He says, that I may be delivered from them that, actually, let's go back, verse uh, 30. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, and that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may, be, and may with you be refreshed. Okay, so Paul's prayer, he, he asks them, and he says, pray for me that I will be delivered, I will be protected from this danger that I foresee is going to happen in Judea, and that I may be able to be accepted of the saints in Jerusalem, and I may come to you with joy, what are the next three words, four words? By the will of God. That all of this would happen by God's will. And I may be with you and may be refreshed. So all of these passages, they don't necessarily explain Acts chapter 21, verse number 4. But they do seem to assert that Paul, first of all, knew what would befall him. And he was led of the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Okay? So we've got to resolve this somehow. How, do, how does this get resolved? Okay? So the first piece of evidence that we have is... The fact that we have all these passages saying it was God's will. The Spirit was leading him to go to Jerusalem. We also know that Jesus had a purpose for Paul's ministry in Acts chapter 9. Let's go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter 9. This is when Paul is called on the road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 15. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. 
So God's saying to Ananias, go to Paul because I have chosen him. I have, I have specifically picked him out to be my witness to three groups of people, to the Gentiles. We knew that. Paul preached most of the time to the Gentiles, right? Then he is also to preach to kings. And thirdly, to preach to the children of Israel. It, was, it is not as if it was not God's will for Paul to preach to the Jews, okay? That is, that is not a violation of what God had called him to. Another thing that he called him to here is to suffer for Christ. Can you imagine being called to suffer? That's my calling. It's not like I'm called to be an evangelist or I'm called to be a song leader, Luke. But rather, no, your calling is to suffer, okay? That's your calling. Maybe Luke's thinking that way today. I don't know. It's okay. <laughs> so, but that was Paul's calling, to suffer for Christ, uh, but the truth is, honestly, that all of us are called to suffer, are we not? We are all called to take up our cross and follow Christ. But the key reason that this passage is important is because Paul is, preached to co- is called to preach to kings. That's mentioned here. And as far as we know, Paul had not preached to any kings up until this point, right? His first recorded sermon to a king was found in Acts chapter 25 to Agrippa. And Agrippa was in... Jerusalem, okay? So it it was necessary for him to be in Jerusalem to preach that message to Agrippa in Jerusalem. We don't also have any other records that Paul preached to any other kings, although we could presuppose that he preached to Nero, the emperor of of the Roman Empire. But from a historical perspective, it was necessary for Paul to go to Jerusalem where he would stand before kings and he would preach the gospel. Now, a third piece of evidence, and I'm not going to park here because I'm going to lose some of you, okay, is grammar, okay? So how many of you guys are good at English? Anybody? Colby, you good at English? Maybe sort of? Okay, there you go. So I have some kids who like it and other kids who hate it, okay? And that's usually how it goes. You either love or you hate it. There's no in-between with English. Katie and I both love grammar, and we both love English. Um, it's, it's our passion, not math, not science, not history. It's English, okay? So which is why we both studied linguistics and all that kind of stuff, right? But I don't want to bore you with this, but I do think it's an important piece to the puzzle, okay? Um, In Acts chapter 21, verse number 4. Let's go back there. Acts chapter 21, verse number 4. says, in finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul, what's the next word? Through. Okay? Now, in, in Greek grammar, the word through is what we call a, uh, an indirect, shows indirect agency. Okay? It is, it is a word that is used sometimes to show that somebody is involved in a process, but not directly. They are indirectly involved in it. Okay? And in, this, in this, this verse, the word through is, is that Greek word there. Versus all the other verses I just had you look at. It's using a different type of word. It's using the word that we could translate as by. In English, in our King James, it's translated in, because the same Greek preposition is used for in and by. But, it is, but in, in Greek, that word by is direct agency. Somebody is directly involved in doing something. So it's like uh, if I have a message... And I've, written, and, I've, and I've spoken it to Chris over here. I've said, go tell Jeff that he needs to stay awake during the preaching, okay? Um, Chris is the intermediate agent going over to Jeff to deliver the message, right? Somebody is in between me and him. Does that make sense? Direct agency means I went to Jeff and I told him the message. Do you understand this grammar point that I'm trying to make? It may seem like this is way, this is way too deep, Jason, okay? But it's important. It's an important piece of the puzzle. Um, and I'm not putting all my eggs in, the, in this basket, but, but it is important to understand that these men entire were using indirect agency. There, there, there was an intermediary here versus all the other passages we looked at were direct agency. Okay? So how do we reconcile these passages? Acts chapter 21 seems to indicate that these, peop- these prophets, they spoke through the Holy Ghost, and I believe they did, right? I believe the best answer... In, the, in, this te- in this text is to understand that these men had been told by the Holy Spirit that suffering would come, but these men interpreted that to mean, Paul, don't go. Okay, that's, that's how I believe the reconciliation of this text is, and that's consistent with the prophecy that we see in Agabus. Did Agabus tell Paul, don't go to Jerusalem? 
No, he did not. And he spoke directly through the Holy Spirit. But these men, they received something, and then them as intermediaries, they adapted it. They, can, they made an application. Do we not see this happen in our day-to-day, though, right? We see people who read the inspired word from Scripture, but they take it and they apply it in ways that God never intended it to be applied. That happens, does it not? One example of this is the command, separate from the world, right? We are told separate to be separate as believers from the world. That means we should abstain from the evil of the world and live distinct lives from the world. But some have taken this to mean you should separate physically from the world. Who do we have as the best example of that? The Amish. Okay, So separate physically from the world. Go and live our own communes and our own little lives uh, separate from the world. But that is not an appropriate application of this concept of separation from the world because Jesus said in John 17, verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from, what? The evil. The evil one and his evil that he brings. Keep them from that, okay? Don't take them out of it. Don't physically remove them, but keep them from the evil of the world. So it is possible and even likely that these men had a message from God, but in their zeal, they misapplied it. They applied it in a way that it wasn't God's will. They assumed that Paul shouldn't go because danger awaited him there. And who wants to go into a dangerous place, right? In fact, most of the time when persecution arose in the cities that Paul went to, what did he do immediately after? He left. In almost every city where persecution arose, Paul left immediately afterwards, okay? And so they, they come up with a false application of the text. We can understand their heart. I think their heart was in the right place. Again, going back to what we talked about with the Ephesians, they, that Paul tore himself away from them, and then in these seven days, I believe these men's hearts were knit to Paul. They had good motives. They had a good heart. They do not want to see anything bad happen to Paul. They wanted him to be able to continue in his ministry, right? This seems like this is the end of Paul's ministry if he goes to Jerusalem, but they want him to be able to continue. But their good motives were misdirected. I think this interpretation, again, it's consistent with what Agabus says when he arrives. He doesn't tell Paul, don't go. He prophesies that Paul will face being bound if he does go. So while I think it's helpful for us to understand this passage and to know if it was God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem, there are some things that we can apply from this text. And this is, this is what I want you to take away from this message today, okay? The first thing that you need to get from this message is this. It is important to live every day of our lives in God's will. That was what Paul desired. That's what these disciples, that's what Luke desired in the very end. The will of the Lord be done. They wanted God's will to be done in their lives. James 4 verse 13 through 15 says, Go to now ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For ye ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. A Christian should have a desire to do God's will. Our lives, according to James, are like a vapor. How long is a vapor? The steam that comes out of your, your teapot. How long does that steam last? It's there for a second and poof gone. Our lives are short. Honestly, con considering we live a little bit longer than people did in, in some of the old days, but 70 years plus compared to uh, the thousands of years this world's been, been around and compared to eternity, to God, our lives are but a vapor. They're here and then they're gone. And what you do in that amount of time, it needs to matter, right? And the only way it's ever going to matter is if you are doing God's will. What ultimately is a value, right? And so it should matter to us to do God's will. Don't plan to go into a city and not even care what God wants. To buy and to sell is, is what he talks about in James 4. But rather you should say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. If God wants me to, I am going to do this or that. And Christians should have that desire. And I do believe God has a will for everything in our lives. Sometimes that will allows us some latitude but God is concerned with our lives. Honestly, to, to believe that he doesn't have a will for your life is to think that God, God doesn't care about your life, right? But God does care. 
God wants what's good, what's best for your life. That means he has a will for all of it, does it not? And it ought to matter to us what God's will is because God's will is ultimately the best good for our life. It is the reason we were created and it is the thing that, that brings the greatest satisfaction and fulfillment in life because we are doing what we have been created to do. It's kind of like uh, taking a wheel and uh, a wheel was created to be put on a car so it can move. And as long as it's on that car, it's going to do what it was fulfilled to do. But you take it and you try to uh, make a cheeseburger out of it, <laughs> okay? I'm using the absurd to illustrate. But is a, is a, t is a tire going to be a good cheeseburger? No, it is not, because that's not what it was created to do, okay? It's not fulfilling its purpose. So the first thing we need to get from this text is it is important to live every day of our lives in the will of God, to be led by his spirit, to know what he wants us to do day to day. Second thing we get from this text is this. Sometimes well-intentioned people can be wrong about what God desires for our lives. These men of Tyre, did they have the Holy Spirit? Did they care about Paul? Yes, they did. These, these godly men, they, God came to them. He spoke to them, but they were misguided in their application. Ultimately, they were wrong to go further than God's message. Later, after Agabus prophesies, we see Luke and the church crying and begging for Paul not to go. And so sometimes we see that well-intentioned people can just be wrong. It isn't that they don't want what's best for your life, because they do. They love you. They care. But they just don't see it. They just don't, get, they don't see how things are supposed to go together. And in the end, you are accountable to God for your own decisions. Proverbs teaches that there is safety in a multitude of counselors, but the multitude of counselors on the flip side do not determine God's will for your life. Because the majority of the men in Paul's life right now, what did they tell him to do? Don't go. But was that God's will for his life? No, it was not. So wisdom says, I'm going to listen. But wisdom also says, I'm accountable to God for my decisions. And I need to do what God wants me to do. So you see that sometimes well-intentioned people can be wrong. Thirdly, sometimes you can have all of the right facts, but not the right solution to the problem. As I said, there's wisdom in getting counsel from a multitude of counselors. And things might make sense to you, but that doesn't necessarily mean it is God's will for your life. <clears throat> it made sense not to go to Jerusalem, right? Who wants to be bound? Who wants to be beaten, persecuted, mocked and ridiculed? Nobody does. Paul could have sent Timothy, Titus, or Luke with the money for the church. He didn't have to personally go to Jerusalem, did he? He had other people there with him. But all the facts in the world did not necessarily make it what God's will for his life was. Illustration of this, Jim Elliot. Do you think Jim Elliot knew that the Aka Indians were dangerous when he went to preach the gospel to them? These people were near extinction because they were killing each other off, right? That's, that was part of the need to get the gospel to them when he did. No one else had done it before. And he didn't even know the language yet completely. He had little bits and pieces, okay? And logic would have said, don't go. It's too dangerous. Logic would have said, work with Dayume. Dayume was one of the Aka Indians who came out of the jungles and lived with the missionaries there. He could have just worked with her and then sent her back, right? Wouldn't that have been safer? Couldn't have been, right? And, then, and learn the language and send her back in a as a missionary. But that wasn't God's will for Jim Elliot's life. And I know Jim Elliot didn't get to accomplish a whole lot with the Akeelan Indians. It doesn't make sense. But you know how many lives have been influenced by the life of Jim Elliot? How many people have gone to unreached tribes to preach the gospel because of this man and his life and his testimony? I firmly believe that it was God's will for Jim Elliot to be where he was, to do what he did, and to die the death that he died. And sometimes you can have all the right facts, but you don't necessarily have the right solution. Fourthly, sometimes God's will is not the easiest path for us to pursue. It is not always the easy road that God wants us to travel. I remember a poem in English class, The, uh, the Path Less Traveled, I think was the poem. Anybody remember that? No? Okay. So anyways, it talks about how in life there's this path that's well-worn because everybody else has gone down that path but I'm choosing to take this path that not a whole lot of people have gone down. It doesn't have all the same nice, easy ruts that I can travel in, but it is the right path for me. 
Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24 through 26, unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, what is he to do? Let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whomsoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There is a road that is well-traveled. It is easy. People all the time are taking this road. Um, most of our society is all about getting money, having a good job, buying nice houses, nice cars, being able to go on vacation and enjoy life, right? And those things aren't inherently wrong in and of themselves. But that is the road more traveled. The road of following Jesus Christ sometimes means sacrifice. It sometimes means a cross. It sometimes means difficulty in life because the world doesn't accept you and they don't, they don't, uh, they don't love Jesus, so therefore they don't love you either. And he says here, for whomsoever shall save his life shall lose it. Following Jesus Christ, if you want to save your life, you want to protect it, you want to have all those things, he says you're ultimately you're going to lose it. Right, the lost, what's their end result? They have a nice mansion today, but what's going to happen when they die? They're going to go to hell, and they're going to lose everything. But then he continues on, and he says, For whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Those who are willing to give up all of that to follow Jesus Christ, to have him as their Messiah, as their leader, as their, their Savior, they will find life. Jesus says they will have eternal life. And then he says, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world? If you had all the money that was possible, all the wealth, all the popularity, but you lose your own soul. What, is a man, what shall a man give in exchange for his own soul? God's will may not always be easy. And at least when you're walking beside you, God, you have somebody to lean upon, though, don't you? And I think this, this verse has a greater application because God's will, God's desire is that all the world would be saved. He wants people to be saved. And you could choose to hold on to life, the wealth, the pleasures, the good things of life, because maybe it's a little hard to be a Christian. Maybe Christians don't do some things that you think they ought to be able to enjoy. But if you hold on to those things, what's the end result going to be? You're going to lose your own soul if you refuse to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. And that, that is ultimately God's will for every single one of our lives today. Let's have head, heads bowed, eyes closed this morning. Let's all stand. I know many of, our li uh, of us live our lives making decisions according to what makes sense, to what logically fits, to what we see. All, all, we have all the right answers, but not necessarily the solution. <clears throat> but have you ever thought that God might have something more for your life, a will greater for your life than the will that you have? God loves you, right? God loves you, and he has a plan for your life. So today I want to give two challenges. First of all, this. Are you seeking God's will for your life? If you're not saved, that will is that you become saved. That you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And as the piano plays, I invite you to come down and talk to me, and I can show you how you can know that your sins are forgiven and that, and that you are able to go to heaven when you die. But do you want God's will for your life? I can promise you this, that it is better than anything you could have imagined because it is, it is the fulfillment of what God created you for. There may be hard times like Paul faced. Paul was going to face a hard moment in his life, but there's the satisfaction of knowing that you are where God wants you to be and he is there with you. Second application is this. Are you leaning on your own understanding of what God's will is? The Bible says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Just because it makes sense to you doesn't necessarily mean it is God's will for your life. Seek him. Ask him to direct your paths and trust that his way is best. But ultimately, this comes down to a submission issue, does it not? Are you submitted to God's will in your life? If you have been pursuing your own way and what makes sense to you, I ask that you would come down this morning and you would commit to God to seek his will and to surrender to what he wants to do in your life.
have thine own will, Lord. You are the potter, I am the clay. Daniel, do you mind dismissing us in prayer tonight?